everyone, this is George Kuros. This is the final episode of iMOOC Season 3. We're lucky to have Kayla Delzer join us tonight. It was a really great conversation, talk about flexible seating, what that looks like. And we really get into, you know, being the, the ability to be innovative, try new things, and, and really understanding your kids. Um, we also talk a little bit about Katie Martin's book, who will be coming. It will be coming up in December, and the possibility of an iMOOC season four. Really want to thank you for your participation, your willingness to try different things, to to share your learning, and I hope you enjoy the final episode. We look forward to connecting with you all again soon. Hey everyone, this is George Kroos. We are in our final episode of iMOOC in season three. And we are very lucky to have Katie Martin, who is always joining us to uh, share some conversations on the past part or on the last uh, episode. But we're also very lucky to have Kayla Delzer, a current uh, grade three teacher, correct, Kayla? Mm -hmm. Yep. And so, uh, She's doing some really great stuff, and uh, we're really excited to have her join us as well. And we're going to talk about the last chapter of the book, but we're really going to talk mostly about Kayla's work. Uh, I just want to say personally thank you for everyone that's participating, uh, whether you're watching this live right now, whether you um, you know watch it later, whether you watch the podcast. It has been really great, and uh, I have actually what I'm very proud to say that this is one of the things that I appreciate. I have been very hands-off of this process. So I, I do things here and there. I've been commenting to some blogs, reading them. Um, but the alumni, the people that have been, uh, Katie and, and, and people all over, have been doing the majority of the process, which I think is is really amazing. And, and so I really appreciate uh, all the leaders that, you know, are alumni from iMOOC before uh, doing this, but all the new participants, and we're going to talk about, uh, we might have another one coming up, but it's going to be a little bit different, and we'll talk about that at some point. Uh, we do have a little bit of an announcement um, coming up, and so uh, thank you for watching, thank you for taking the time, and I'm going to turn it over to Katie. Awesome, thanks George. It's hard to believe that we are finally here in the final episode, um, but super excited, very excited to have Kayla here, especially as a mom of a second and third grader. I have lots of questions for her. Um, and just as a really innovative teacher, um, I follow her on Instagram and all the things she shares with her kids. And I think it's really awesome. And we have a lot that we're going to get to learn tonight from her. Before I turn it over to Kayla, though, I do want to give a shout out. I know George said the alumni have been awesome, but I want to give a special shout out to both Anik um, Rauch and Tara Martin for helping with the Twitter chats. Those girls have been amazing. It's been a lot of work, and I really appreciate um, the team and how they have pulled together to pull that off. So thank you and everyone else who's enjoyed that. Make sure you give them a shout out as well. And I'm going to turn it over to um, Kayla, and have her share a little bit about who she is, what you do, and what inspires you to do this awesome work. Okay, well, first of all, thank you both for inviting me on here. Um, this is a huge honor to have been invited, so thank you guys both for reaching out. Um, so as you both said, I'm a third grade teacher. Um, I'm still in the classroom. I teach just outside of Fargo, North Dakota. Um, I am in my 10th year of teaching now, so it's crazy that it's been 10 years since I started. Um, I have a master's degree in elementary ed, and I also am a, I'm a keynote speaker, TEDx speaker. Um, my first book is coming out at the end of this month, and then my second book will be coming out June 1st, 2018 is what we're hoping for. So 
and still in the classroom, but I do um, PD and speaking and writing and blogging and all sorts of other things outside of the classroom as well. So that's a little bit about me, I guess. Awesome. And will you, will you tell us a little bit about the books that are coming out so we know what to anticipate? Sure. So um, the first book that um, is coming out at the end of this month is actually, it's called Education Right Now, Volume 1. And there are 10 of us that got together this summer in Philadelphia, and we each wrote one chapter about something that we were super passionate about um, or pressing in education. And um, it was written in 48 hours in Philadelphia, which was a crazy experience. And we all just got to pick our topic sort of when we got there. So after crowdsourcing Instagram, um, I came up with like three different sort of main ideas. And then I ended up writing about um, the power of relationships in school. And so that's what my chapter is about is relationships. And then um, the second book is coming out through Dave Burgess in June 1st, hopefully is our date that we're shooting for. And that's going to be all about flexible seating and classroom design, which we'll be talking a lot about tonight. So that's really exciting too. Awesome. So I know you share a lot about flexible seating and you've written a lot about that. What are some of your key takeaways and how have you decided to shift your classroom to more flexible seating? So it's funny um, when I talk about sort of how this whole flexible, flexible seating thing started, I was actually um, avoiding my TEDx talk script. <laughs> so when I was trying to work at my house, I was going for runs and doing laundry and I was avoiding my work. And then when I really needed to get work done, I would always, every single time without fail, like go to Starbucks and just get it done. And so one day I was looking around and there was a lot of people there working. Like I started to see familiar faces. And so I realized like Starbucks was a better learning environment than my house. And then I started thinking like, okay, it's also a better learning environment than my classroom. And so I started thinking about how I could really implement um, different elements that Starbucks has um, sort of started doing or has been doing into my classroom. So I started by public like a standing bar at my table I, at my um, classroom. I've got areas where kids can sit on the floor. I've got different um, one area where kids can start to move um, if they like to move. Um, pretty much it's just about like teaching kids how to learn where they learn best um, because lots of times kids have just been told you learn best in this desk facing this area um, but not these kids around you and these kids can be around you so when you really ask them like where do you think they learn best they really don't know right away so it's it's about teaching them um, how to have use their student voice and give them a lot of choice I think so it's funny because it really all started in Starbucks. I started after TEDx, I would keep going back to Starbucks and I was like that weird person who was taking notes about like what the temperature was outside and what music was playing and how many people were there and if they switched seats and what kind of drinks they had, like all of those things. So I felt like I needed to know something about it when I was gonna ask my principal if I could start it. And of course he let me, which is just started this flexible seating thing that's happening all around the world, which is really cool and super humbling. You see a classroom in Hong Kong that's using the flexible seating model from my classroom, which is crazy. So that's and, that's the short, long version. And, and actually, uh, a lot of people, I don't know if they actually know this, but I actually wrote the entire book in Starbucks. And mm -hmm. one of the and this is not a promotion for Starbucks at all. It's not by any means, we are not yeah. sponsored by them. No. Right. Yeah, it's just like... Um, it's something that people are very familiar with. Now, the, the thing with Starbucks for me, uh, the reason that I actually go to Starbucks 
because I travel quite a bit is I know uh, mm-hmm. things will be in, in it. Like if I go to a random coffee shop, you know, I, first of all, I don't really drink coffee. So that's kind of a thing, but I actually know there's going to be flexible seating. There's going to be differentiated seating. There's going to be instant access to Wi-Fi. Uh, there's going to be a vibe of a place that I want to be in. And so I think that's, those those four things I just listed are things that I actually think are really important for a classroom. Not because a lot of schools, what they'll do is they'll they'll have um, you know new seating and you know like it's ergonomically blah 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 blah. But the thing is, if it if a kid doesn't like it, it doesn't matter. So I think the high seating is actually really important. And and I think what you're talking about, like how you notice that one of the characteristics of the innovator's mindset is the notion of being observant. And what I, what I kind of mean by that is actually looking at things outside of education and saying, okay, well, this really works here. Why, why, like, how do we implement this and bring this in the classroom? Now you're not serving coffee, Starbucks doesn't sponsor (laughs) you, blah, blah, blah. But I think that's what, I think that's something that we want more educators just to be aware of the world, right? Be aware of the world. And a lot of times we only listen to educators when we talk about education where we should just be, and it's not like people are like, oh, you're like selling stuff, blah, blah, blah. That's not the point of it at all. It's just being aware. It's just being aware. Like when you talk about like how Google treats their employees, well, motivation is a very big thing to them where motivation is very crucial in a classroom. And so um, mm-hmm. like, how, do you, how have you seen the impact of, of what you've changed uh, mm-hmm. in, in, with your students? So many, literally pages and pages um, of benefits for sure. So like you said, motivation is one of the top um, best things that's improved. So like I always talk about, school should be a place where kids want to be and not a place where, where kids have to be. And um, I think like changing over to flexible seating really made my classroom a place where kids wanted to be um, because they felt like they had ownership and choice and they got to choose where they work best and they got to be in control of a lot of things, um, which in turn gave me actually a lot of control too. Um, so the motivation is of course, super increased. Kids are really excited to be there. And the more you can get kids excited about their learning, obviously the more learning they're going to do. So that just makes a lot of sense to me. Um, also, I've seen a lot of um, decrease in distracting behavior. So kids who are initially the most off task actually see the greatest benefit from having choice. And I think that makes a lot of sense. If you have kids who um, traditionally don't do well sitting in a desk, giving them some other opportunities, like you can stand and work, or you can sit and work, or you can lay down and work. Like, I don't care where they work as long as they're able to get their work done. So um, increased motivation and engagement. Of course, we talk about engagement all the time in school and why that's really important. And I think just having the flexible seating has really helped with both of those things. Decreased distracting behavior, of course. Um, My test scores are up, which I know you can probably talk a ton about how you don't do innovation to have better test scores. Like, that's not why we do this. Um, But when kids are there and they're excited to be learning, like, of course, they're going to learn more. So the motivation was huge. I I think that's a a big thing is that people talk about curriculum or, you know, and test scores and then innovation is two separate things. And I think that if you get the kids more interested in being at school, I think that just obviously they're going to be more interested in learning. It's not that we're forsaking one for the other, but we're actually connecting right. the two. But mm-hmm. here, here's something I always bring up, and I, I think it's really important. So as an adult, this is not something I realized about myself until way later in life. Um, Starbucks has couches. Starbucks has high seating. Now, I have to 
basically stand and sit back and forth. So I always prefer if I'm going to get work done, I have to go to the high to the high tables. But if I'm a kid and you have a classroom with high tables or couches, there's a pretty good chance I would have went to the couch. Now I wouldn't have done anything. Um, so that's not really helpful. So how do you work with students who, you know, maybe go to the, the place of comfort first, not the, what actually accelerates them? How do you mm-hmm. actually help them figure that out themselves? Yeah, that is, that is really true. So I do have a high table. I ha- actually have bar stools there this year, and I haven't had a ton of kids standing. They love to sit at the high stools. I think that they think they're, like, mature or old or something. <laughs> they, I'm like, really, you could stand. That's why we have the standing table, but they love to sit, and that's fine. Um, but I also have coaches. I also have lots of comfy, like, beanbag chairs, and you're totally right. So my kids know that I really don't care where they're working as long as they're working. And we talk early on about what productive means. And if you're choosing a seat based on just comfort or where your friends are, then that's not choosing a seat really based on where you learn best. Um, so one thing that we do, actually, we there's two things that kind of help with that process. So on day one of school, um, kids get to choose where they want to sit for the day. Um, but it's after morning meeting. We talk about here are all these different kind of options. And like, yes, I am that teacher who's going to let you choose where you want to work as long as you're working. Um, and there are kids day one of school. They're like, I don't need to try any of the seats because I'm a ball chair kid. And you're like, you are not a ball chair kid. I can tell you that right now. Like you are the kid who's not going to do well on the ball chair, but okay. So what we actually do is we talk about like, expectations for all of the different kinds of seating and then kids actually choose a seat for a day so like George if you're in my class you'll maybe do like ball chair day one and at the end of day one you tell me where you're going to sit for day two and then you try day two and then you try a different seat on day three then you try a different seat on day four so we call it 10 days of exploration in my classroom so they have to explore all 10 ways um, because kids don't know what they don't know And lots of times it's their first experience with having choice seating. And it's their first experience with like sitting at a high table or standing at a table. So they really don't know. Um, They think they know and they don't know. Lots of times they aren't exactly sitting at the end of the, at the end of the 10 days, they sometimes don't choose where they initially thought that they would choose. So giving them 10 days of expectation or 10, 10 days of exploration, I think is really crucial. Um, I also model just super high expectations for my kids. Um, I don't give warnings in my classroom um, because I feel like warnings really blur the line of like what's acceptable and what's not acceptable to me. So um, I don't give warnings in my classroom, which I think has helped too. Um, And then at the end of 10 days, I think this part is pretty critical. We actually have um, a day after 10 days of exploration where we talk about what went well and what didn't go well and what do we need as a class to make flexible seating successful this year. And so we actually develop um, classroom norms together. And I really do value norms over rules because rules are typically generated by a teacher and enforced on students. Um, And actually norms are generated by my students. um, And they write down three, we write down three to five things that they need to have this year to make flexible seating successful. And of course, I've got like my list in my head too. And usually they mesh together, which is is good. Um, And then they sign them on the bottom, like a contract. And so one of the norms that everyone agrees on is like, if you're not being productive, then the teacher can move you. um, And then then you move right away. And so kids know that 
at the end of the day, like they need to be working where they're choosing to work. And so sometimes whether that's using language with them, like choose a smart seat or whatever it might be, just really making sure that kids feel like they have at least three choices or places in the classroom where they can work. Because George, the reality is when you go to Starbucks, maybe the standing table is full and then you have to go someplace else. So having a second or a third choice is really important for those kids too. I just, I just wait and stare. <laughs> so like someone will move. Yeah. So Kayla, what I love about that is like a lot of times, and same as with a lot of innovation or new ideas, people can get stuck on the thing instead of really focusing on powerful teaching and learning. And although you're talking about flexible seating and you have new places for kids to sit, I hear you talking a lot about norms, expectations, how you design the learning experiences. And, um, you know, too often we kind of conflate this idea of like, hey, you're going to have choices, so it's a Mm free-for-all, instead of really understanding that there are expectations and there are ways that you can teach kids to be successful in that space. Mm -hmm. So I just, I would love to hear a little bit more from you about your thoughts on like the the teaching and the, and how your classroom pedagogy almost has changed Mm -hmm. to accommodate the flexible seating. Yeah. Everything you're saying, I'm like, yes, 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 yes. Because I get tagged so much in like, look at this new chair or look, I brought a canoe in my classroom and like, that's cool. But like, it's literally a canoe in a classroom. But, and that's like, that is cool. Don't get me wrong. Like, that's really cool. But if the focus is on the furniture, like the focus is in the wrong place. Um, The furniture is just part of it. So I always talk about how it's more than furniture. It's really a um, mindset shift for the teacher. And you are letting go of a seating chart. Like that is like the most powerful tool that you have as a traditional teacher is the seating chart. So getting rid of that is really, um, it's really giving up a lot of power. And so um, having them, it's a teaching mindset shift. Like being willing to let go of that power is, it's more than furniture. It's a structure change. It's a teaching mindset change. And um, I thought I had really good classroom management for my first eight years of teaching. Like I, I thought I was really good at classroom management and then I got rid of the seating chart and I realized like, I really need to step it up a lot. And I got a lot better with my management once I started doing flexible seating, um, because you need to know where kids are all the time and why they're choosing the seats that they are. So I think like, as far as, um, as far as like my teaching mindset, it definitely had to change understanding that kids need lots of different things to be successful. And so giving them lots of different seating options was important. Um, I think like lots of my, my true North, like my compass for teaching has stayed the same regardless of the seating. Like I think um, the best practices that I always had before I still have. So I still do like a reading workshop and a writing workshop and math stations and small group instruction happens in every subject in my classroom every single day. And I think um, like those things have stayed the same. Um, but a lot has changed too, where my kids are working independently or when they're working with their accountability partners, like just making sure that they are working where they can be comfortable, but also where they can be successful. So I think with all of that, just keeping the focus, um, not so much on the furniture, but more on the teaching and the, and the flexible learning almost, I think is really where the focus needs to be. The, the, uh, the, there's a couple of things I want to address here. And one is the comment that's actually on YouTube. Um, but just a story that I, that I heard, I thought it was really powerful. So there is a, uh, a school 
or a, a class, a classroom teacher who had uh, the same kids late for class over and over and over again. And they would punish them, give them late slips, do all these different things. And they continuously tried to work on the kids to see the value of doing this. And what they actually had done, um, none of the stuff was working. So what the teacher had done is they replaced uh, the desks in the front of the classroom. So there were still desks there, but they, in the front of the classroom, they actually put couches but it was first come first serve you could get whatever seat you wanted mm. if you were there and what the teacher had said is basically the kids that were continuously late rushed there to get the couches and so they were there early and so it, i thought it was just a really powerful story uh in the sense that we're we often try to fix the kid as opposed to change the environment so often we talk mm -hmm. about here's what the kids are doing wrong here's the issue with the child as opposed to why doesn't the kid want to come to school like, mm -hmm. what, what are we doing with the student that they hate being here? And I think that's a question we really need to look at what we're doing. And it's not like I'm really big on personal responsibility. Like, I don't think that, you know, it's all about all the teacher's fault that a kid doesn't want to show up to school and blah, blah, blah. But I think we can we have to kind of find some middle ground and say, OK, what you know, this isn't working for this child. Can we do something better that actually brings them to as opposed to you're going to adjust to me and if you don't like it too bad. And I don't think that's a, a good process. But there is one question or comment that was made by uh, Teresa Watkins um, on the YouTube live stream. And she said, uh, is flexible seating the best when your kids go from room to the junior high where there is no flexible seating? And what I would say to this is do not lessen the opportunities for the kids because you're concerned they're going to go to something less. Like the bar, the I talk about this all the time, about the notion of equity in our classrooms. And so if this group doesn't have flexible seating but or has flexible seating and it's an amazing experience for these kids and this kid doesn't, your job is not to say, well, that's not really fair, so let's you know bring it all down here. Your job is to say, look, we got to figure out a way to get it here. So this is really improving opportunities for learning. So it's always important that when we talk about equity of opportunity, that we create it at the highest level, not, not trying to do this. And so I'm sure that... Um, I'm sure that, Kayla, you have probably gone through this in some point where, you know, a, a teacher didn't want you to do it, not because it wasn't working, but because it might make them look bad. Mm -hmm. So what I, I talk about this all the time. That's one of like the top 10 questions I get about flexible seating um, is about like, well, I don't know if I should do it this year because next year's teacher isn't going to do it. Like, it doesn't matter that next year's teacher is not going to do it. I always talk about, like, best practice starts now. And I really encourage groups, like, if I go to a conference or I go to a district and I talk about flexible seating, I talk about you don't need to wait for Christmas break to do this or Thanksgiving break or a next school year or for next year's teacher to do it. Like, if you're always waiting for next year's teacher to do it, you could be waiting the entire school year and then, like, the entire next school year because they might not ever get on board. So I think it's just really crucial to be – um, implementing things like right away and you don't you don't need to wait for next year's teacher and I liked how you talked about lessening the bar that's a good way of saying that addressing that so and actually like what's really happening in um, in the workforce I mean you look at places like Google or Facebook or they all these common workspaces they are incredible like they are some really incredible workspaces and so colleges are starting to model what their colleges look like after those workspaces and then high schools um, are modeling what colleges look like. So actually starting flexible seating in elementary school was pushing really from the other side. Like it's, 
it's new and it's out of nowhere where lots of colleges have been innovating and changing their seating for a long time because workspaces are. So I just, well, and I, I think every, you know, everybody is, and like you said, I love that point. You can't wait because best practice starts now. I just want to reiterate that that is amazing. Um, and we always have this notion that like, well, they're not doing it or there's an excuse or my kids aren't ready. Um, and, you know, I think you said early on in second grade, kids don't know how to make those choices about their learning. Well, guess what? Sometimes in seventh grade and in eighth grade and in high school and college, kids don't know how to make those choices either because they haven't been given the opportunity. And so they don't make those choices. Um, and so I think it's incumbent upon all of us to start thinking about how do we help them? There's teachers who have told me, Katie, I don't know how to personalize my own learning. I've never done that. And so we have all these spaces that we talk about, like people making these choices, but we don't guide them along the path, you know, and like my last just comment on that, I worked in an open, flexible space and it takes time. It takes setting norms as adults. It takes conversations about how we best work together, where we sit and how we interact. Um, and so I love that you're, you're teaching that early on. And so I guess my question, as um, I wish I was asking for a friend, but just as a mom and thinking about my kids in school now, um, you know, the, the goal setting. So what are some like really powerful strategies or ideas about how to help kids early on set those goals and really lead their own learning and, and kind of make those choices? Do you have some strategies for us? Yeah. Moms so <laughs> or <yeah>. teachers <laughs> So when it comes to helping kids learn um, where they learn best, um, I really try to help my kids take notice in that first 10 days about um, how on task they are. Um, and so one word that I use with my students a lot, um, it's comes from the nurtured heart approach, if you're familiar with that at all. Um, I, I use very little of it, but I do use um, one word that we use is called, it's just reset. So if I tell my kids to reset, that's just a um, verbal cue for them that either their body doesn't look like it's ready to learn or their voice isn't off or they look distracted or they're talking to somebody. Um, I will tell them to reset and then either they'll stay where they are if they feel like, oh, I just got off task because everybody does because we're all humans. Like even as an adult, I get off task. Um, so I use that word with them and they get to decide if they stay, if they can stay where they are, if that's a good place for them to work or if they need to move. So that might just be like a verbal, a verbal cue that you use with your kids. That definitely works for, for me. Um, but I think also just having, helping them take notice of how productive they are. So one thing I do in my classroom a lot is pretty much everything is run by a timer. Our math stations are exactly 60 minutes. And so depending on how long my mini lesson is, like my kids will set the timer up on our smart board for every station is between depending on 10 minutes and 30 seconds up to 12 minutes and 30 seconds. And so giving them that timer is also a good, um, a good visual for those kids of how much time they have left at that station. And so that's helpful too. So visual cues are good. Verbal cues are good, but also helping them um, think about like what is a good seating choice and what isn't. So the kid, literally the kid last year who came in and said, I got this. Don't worry about it. Cause I know I'm a vulture kid. Like he found out he really wasn't a Voltaire kid because he fell off the chair or he was talking or he had to be moved. So helping them take notice of, did they get their work done? Um, how did they feel? Were they comfortable? Were they happy? And if they weren't, then maybe that's not the seating choice for them. So I know personally, when I go to Starbucks, 
I'm not like George, actually. I like to sit on the comfy chair and there's a big coffee table in front of me and I lay out all my stuff and my computer. But if that's taken, then I need to have a backup plan. Like I will go to the standing bar or like my very last choice every time is the traditional long table with the hard chairs. Like I hate sitting there. It's painful for me. Um, but I understand like one of my best friends, um, she loves sitting there. That's where she lays out all her stuff. So I think it's important to still acknowledge that there are learners who do like that. And so in your classroom, having traditional seating for some kids, maybe that is where they learn best. So um, it's not so much about like a perfect match of having only these certain types of seating. It's really matching seating with learners. So just a few ideas. I'm not sure if any of those really help with what you're asking, but hopefully. So, so Kayla, how do you, how do you reckon this? Because this is a conversation that I, I seem to be having a lot lately. And I know Katie has addressed this in one of her blog posts and Katie, I, I know that you're going to know exactly what blog posts I'm talking about. So I encourage <laughs> you to tweet it out uh, when you do this is that, you're doing something that isn't necessarily research in a laboratory, blah, 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 for years and years and years. And it really irks me when people say, like, everything has to be done by research who also want teacher autonomy. Because when um, teacher experience, the experience you have with kids is research, right? If you don't believe that your experience is valuable, then there's something you're just stuck and I think that's a really bad issue, right? So obviously, if you would have done this and everything would have failed, um, you wouldn't <laughs> say, well, I'm but I like the look, right? You wouldn't do this as well. So mm -hmm. how, do you, how do you kind of see that notion of like, basically you are doing something that uh, you're trying with your students. And, and I think that it's really important to, to note that you were the guinea pig. If you really look back <laughs> at your story, you're talking about, okay, this is working for me and this is what I would prefer. And so now I'm creating this, right? You didn't just mm -hmm. like all of a sudden just say, well, let's see what happens, right? You're like seeing this as a learner yourself. And I think that one of the things that I always try to get people, I talk about myself in this context because I actually think that I'm a pretty good speaker. And I think that in my first years of teaching, I wasn't necessarily a good teacher, but I was a really good speaker. And I think that when you're talking about what you're doing, the kids, when they left me, they would say, oh, this teacher's not as funny as you. They're not as exciting, you know, when they talk. And what I did is I created a dependence upon myself, not necessarily have them figure out how they learn best, right? And so how do you kind of determine, and, and please, if you're, if all you're getting from what I just said is that, I think research is not valuable. You're you're just you're something's wrong. Okay. So the reality of this is is that I also see research in experience and what you do with kids and what you see. Like obviously you're seeing a difference, but how, how do you kind of balance that where you're trying something new that you know hasn't doesn't have millions of studies on it? Like how do you balance mm -hmm. that and how do, you, how do you deal with that? Yeah, so two things there. Um First thing I'm going to say is a quote from Todd Whitaker, which I really love. He talks about how um, he says teachers don't steal the worst ideas from other teachers. So the more you can get teachers sharing ideas, even if they are brand new ideas, like a teacher's not going to walk into a classroom and be like, that's a terrible idea. I'm going to go do it in my classroom. Like that just doesn't happen. And so you're totally right, though. This was like my I went to my principal with research from Starbucks, like sitting in a Starbucks. That was my research to him. But he's like a, you met him, George. He was like a super fit 
his office had a standing desk. He didn't have right. a traditional desk. So it was like actually a pretty easy sell for him, but he could have said no. And then I wouldn't have done it. But in my own mind, like I knew that it was working for me as an adult. And at some point, I think like in college, probably I learned, like I didn't learn best in my dorm room. Like I sometimes had to go to the library or I would go to Starbucks. And so I started thinking about how I could be doing that more in my classroom. And it really all came to, like to the surface when I was struggling to get my stuff done for Ted. Like, and when Ted has a deadline, like you have to meet that deadline. So I made deadline. myself go to Starbucks and I would get it done. And so that's when I first started implementing this, like I, I went to my principal, he gave me permission. Um, when the, when my team came, I was a team lead. I was a second grade team lead and I had three teachers working with me. And I told them at the team lead meeting or the team uh, meeting that fall, I was like, okay, I'm going to try this new thing. I'm not going to have assigned seats and I'm just going to have different options and kids can choose where they want to work. Like anyone want to try this with me? Like zero, none of them wanted to try it with me. No one in my building was trying it. Like I was totally on my own with this and I was giving myself until Halloween. Like I was going to let myself make it to Halloween. And if it worked, like I was going to keep doing it. And if it tanked, then at least I tried, like, at least I tried something. And so you're right. Like there, I've tried to find research on it and there's tons of benefits, obviously with movement and, um, incorporating movement in your classroom and how that has lots of health benefits. So I, I saw all of that, um, which was, which is what I went off of and which is what I had. And so that research still stands and that research has proven tried and true over this last three or four years. Um, but there's a lot more new research now. So people like people are doing their dissertations on it. People are getting master's degrees and they're writing their, their final thesis about it. So there is more research on it coming out now. But you're right, like I didn't have to wait for there to be research to know that it's something that I wanted to try in my classroom. And like, thank goodness I had I had a principal who let me do it. And then like ironically, even before Halloween happened, one of my class, uh, one of my second grade teammates, she raised the table in her classroom and I walked by and I literally like cheered for her. And I was like, you go girl, like I see you with that standing table. That's amazing. And then uh, the teacher that I was, um, she was hooked onto my classroom. Actually, she was a brand new first year teacher. She took some legs like off of a table and kids were sitting around it on the floor working. And I was like, that is a bold move for a brand new teacher. Like, let me know if you need any help. And then pretty soon the whole kindergarten team had like paraded through my classroom when I was teaching to see what was going on. And then actually by December, there were so many requests for flexible seating that my principal actually wrote a grant and it got funded. So like $20,000 of flexible seating came to our, our school and the whole school went to a flexible seating approach, which was really awesome because then you don't have that thing about like, oh, should I do it? Because next year's teacher's not doing it. Like that's not a thing there because everybody does it. And we actually had school-wide norms set for it. So it's the same expectation, no matter who the teacher is, no matter who the kids are. And so that's some really awesome stuff that's happening at Legacy for sure. So Kayla, that brings up a lot of points. And I know people are super excited online seeing their ideas. Like you've inspired so many more. Um, but two things that we've talked a lot about that I just want to point out. Um, and to your point, George, about research that, you know, and I love research. I think it's important and it's good to kind of know where we've been and what worked. But you as a teacher looked at your kids, figured out what they needed. You looked at your environment, as George said earlier, being observant about like, what are some other opportunities? 
And you didn't just like try something like you, you put together a proposal, asked and were thoughtful about it. And I, so I think I encourage more teachers to do that, to really put their ideas out there and trust themselves. And on the flip side, administrators to believe in the ideas, because it, it, it took two. It took your administrator to say, yes, go for it and give you that permission. But it took you standing up to say, here's an idea. And he could trust you because you had thought through it. Mm -hmm. um, and that courage and that insight then inspired so many more. And I think that so often teachers don't believe in their ideas and they don't see someone else doing it and don't take that risk. And so I just want to elevate what you did and really encourage so many teachers out there to try that and principals say, yes, mm -hmm. give it a try. Let people be, be flexible and, and really look at what's possible, not what research exists, but what's possible in the context and, and what you could learn Mm -hmm. um, from trying those things out. Teacher research is by far, you know, action research, the most powerful way to learn and to, to improve um, what happens in our classrooms. And I've, so, been, I've, been, I've been saying this too, is that the best research any teacher can do is know the kids in front of them. That's mm -hmm. it. Right. Mm -hmm. So I think yeah. that's a really important aspect to know your community. Every community is different. You can't, uh, Joe Sanfilippo says you can't carbon copy culture. And mm -hmm. I think that's so true. Mm -hmm. I'll just say too, like there was a, sort of a third party that had to be on board when I was starting this and that's the parents. Um, like seriously, can you even imagine Katie four years ago walking into a classroom and being, having a teacher be like, I, you literally have parents who come to open house. They have all of their child stuff labeled and they come in and they're like, I don't see any name tags and where's my child's desk. And then I'm the teacher who's like, well, we're trying this thing this year where your kid's not going to have their desk. And so really they have a work bin over there and that's where you're going to put their folders. Well, we're going to put all the other stuff over here and it's okay that you labeled it, but we're sharing it because that's what we're doing in our classroom. And yeah, so hopefully you like what I do this year. Like I didn't have any parents go down to the office to like yank their kid out of my class that year at open house. So that was lucky because I was half anticipating that. Um, and I did actually have a parent share at uh, parent-teacher conferences. I do student-led conferences, which I've done now for years. And we actually have our first parent-teacher conferences next Monday and Tuesday. And my students, they lead the whole thing. They go over their scores. They go over their personal goal, their academic goal, um, the best part of the day, the hardest part of the day. What do they want to improve on? They lead the whole conference. Um, I had a parent at the end of a student-led conference the first year be like, I'm going to be really honest with you. When I first saw this classroom, I didn't know if it was going to be a good fit for my child because my child needs a lot of structure, but my child's had a lot of success this year. So thanks for doing what you're doing because it's really working. And I think like that's sort of the preconceived notion about flexible seating is that it's unstructured. And I will be the first to say like flexible seating does not mean unstructured. Like my classroom has more structure than it ever did. Um, and it's really, it's developed by the kids and what they need to have um, a successful school day. So the expectations are super high. The norms are in place and it is super structured. Um, the flexible part is the voice and the choice and getting my kids to take ownership of their learning. That's the part that is really the flexible part. So, so Kayla, 
one of the in the final chapter of the book one of the things i talk about is the importance of sharing your story and before i ask you a question mm-hmm. um we're getting near to the end of uh this episode and so if you i'm watching the youtube chat i'm also watching the uh i the imu hashtag so we're gonna take some questions okay. but i, I want i want to know um because i know that really you have started you started sharing your story uh several years ago and I, I know it's made an impact uh, not only on you professionally, but obviously your your students. Which I think that uh, this is really important to understand is that people like people are like oh, self promoting, and, and then people get really nervous about sharing. The reality of it is, if you're doing things with your kids, the consumer is actually mm-hmm. it's really important. The consumer is critical, thinking about this, takes ideas. And like you said, you know, you took other people's ideas and, you know, revamped them to your community. So how, how has been sharing your story online through your blog, through your Twitter, how has it actually made an impact um, on you and how has it made an impact on your students? Yeah. So you actually were the first person who told me, like, you need to be on Twitter in 2012. And I was like, I'm not getting on Twitter. And then I got on Twitter. <laughs> And then literally three months later, I got my students on Twitter. And I was like, who even am I right now? Like, what (laughs) even is this right now? Um, But here's the thing. Like, I tell teachers all the time and administrators, anybody who is a human being needs to hear this. Like, what is ordinary to you might be extraordinary to somebody else. So share literally everything that you're doing because it's going to benefit kids. Like, Todd says we don't steal other teachers' worst ideas. So share what you're doing in your classroom because it might be something simple to you, but it might be something that's like crazy. This is the best idea ever. I can't believe I haven't been doing this ever. Share it because somebody else, it's going to impact them. So I think like starting my blog, getting on Twitter, um, getting on Instagram, doing all of those different sort of places that connect me with other teachers is the most valuable resource that we have as teachers. So it's not all about just producing and putting things out, like my best ideas come from Twitter and Instagram and reading blogs. Like that is where I get the most inspiration. And so I think for me, it's been a place not only to, as an output to share my story, but as an input, it fills me and it nurtures me and it gives me inspiration and it fires me up and it keeps me going and it keeps me growing, I think, and challenges me and helps me to learn and endless possibilities like I know you talk about isolation is a choice that teachers make and that could not be more true in 2017 like if you're feeling isolated that is your choice because there are so many fabulous teachers on Instagram and on Twitter and they have blogs and they're sharing their ideas for free all you need to do is put in some time to like go read a few of their tweets and get inspired and then put it into practice so all of those things Awesome. I have um, another maybe selfish question, but it's also something we've been talking about a lot in the season. And so I'm wondering, as a second grade teacher, we've heard a lot about research from Joe Bowler and some ideas from Alice Keeler. Um, but as you give students more choice, and I love that you said that your classroom has more structure than ever, because that is another mm-hmm. misconception. Yes. Um, so I'm also wondering, the other side of that, when we talk about innovation and trying new things, is really like, so grading and traditional structures. So I'm, I would love to hear some of your thinking, like in the back of my, I'm thinking like traditional spelling tests and, and homework and grades. What are some ways that you have struggled through that or some suggestions you have for all of us? 
Uh, that's really tricky. I am like actually <laughs> right in the midst of that right now. Um, it is hard. I actually just had a conversation with somebody about standards-based grading versus traditional grades. And I think it's just maybe like a disconnect between what we're expecting of kids and how we grade and assess kids. And um, we talk about like what you measure is what matters. And so um, I think it's it's a this is a slippery slope, Katie, that you got me on right Sorry. now. Because I am deep in it. <laughs> no, because I, I am too. And I think about when we talk about innovation and we talk about um, we want our schools to be more innovative, um, yet we are telling teachers really what matters most or what we measure you by is this end of the year assessment. Like the innovation that you're doing in your classroom, that's not assessed on that assessment and what you measure matters. So I think that's really a tricky thing um, that doesn't stop me from doing all of the things that I'm doing um, because I think that that's really important. And I, I think in my heart, like that's what kids really need to be prepared for. Um, but I think it's, it is tricky. It's hard. So I do a lot of research as much as we just talked about research. I do a lot of research about like spelling tests and um, the impact on that and homework especially in elementary schools, homework and what matters with homework and what really doesn't have any significant impact. And so like the one, the one true thing that I will say about homework in elementary school that really matters is just reading to kids, um, reading to your kids, even if they're in fifth or sixth grade, like still sitting down and reading to them, even though they can read is really important. Um, and then also carving out about 20 minutes a, a night for kids to read um, books that they want to read, not books that they have to read that are assigned, like choice books for fun. Like that is what the research is saying is really important in elementary school. So that is my, that is my homework policy is like, I just want you to read 20 minutes every night, read to your kids, have fun. Like I send a letter home at the beginning of the year. Like it's not my job to tell you what you do at home with your time, with your family, because you don't come to school and tell me what I need to do with my kids here. So have fun, like play a game, go to their basketball games. Let me know what their schedule is so I can come to their basketball games. Like I don't expect kids to do more at home than I'm willing to do at home at night after a day of working at school. So I think that's a good, that's a good barometer too. For sure. I think that's, that's super important. And the reading at home, I just have to say my son in second grade has become an avid reader because of um, Captain Underpants. Oh my God. <laughs> He loves them so much and we have like lots of conversations about it, but he gets to choose it. And it's so important that now he sees himself as a reader. Mm -hmm. um, and I love that. Like, why are we expecting kids to do more than we're willing to do as adults at home? If you're not, why are you taking, you don't want to take your work home. So why are we expecting, expecting kids to do that? So I think that's um, a really important insight. But I just want to touch on one last thing because I know we need to go to um, questions. But um, you mentioned earlier that your test scores have improved. So I think that there's this tension, right, that in, as a teacher in the classroom, I just want you to talk a little bit more about that, that people measure you on your test scores. And so there, that is the pressure. But when we reach beyond test scores and those basic skills, kids often exceed our expectations. Mm -hmm. So um, where do you get that motivation and, and kind of what do you think, can, what can you attribute to the increase in test scores if you're not just narrowly focusing on the test scores? Yeah, that is true. Um, I think it comes from a lot of different things. Um, having the really high expectations for kids and 
especially like if you if you think that they can do something or you can't do something like you're right so you might as well try what is harder or try what's the higher expectation and see if they can do it and right we talk about like this productive struggle right like that and I I think this is really true too with kids like I talk about problem solvers now or problem solvers later. And like in my classroom, we say be a problem solver, not a problem maker. And we talk about um, the importance of solving problems. And I think even as an adult, like don't be the adult who comes with three problems and no solutions, right? And so we talk about that with kids. Um, how are you going to solve problems? And the more that you can be helping them um, have ownership, um, take ownership of their learnings. They are in charge of solving their problems. Like we literally have a problem scale in our classroom from one to 10. And like, if your iPad battery is dead, that's like a level four, like do not come and interrupt my teaching because you need to solve your own problem with that. Like if you are the kid who literally just threw up in my classroom, you can come and talk to me. That's like a problem scale 10, but helping them understand what is a problem and what isn't a problem, I think is really important. And then of course, when you have something like flexible seating, there are going to be naturally problems that come up um, where two kids get to the seat at the same time. What are you going to do? Like if you're, if Katie and I, if we both get to Starbucks at the same time, we have our drinks, we have our work, we both want that one seat. I'm going to tell Katie, you can sit there and you'll be like, no, really, you were here first. You could sit there. Like, Kids don't initially have that conversation. Kids say, this was my seat. That's my chair. Like, I don't you see, I put my pencil here an hour ago. So I was clearly saving the seat for myself. Like they don't have that conversation until you model that. So model your expectations, keep your expectations really high. Um, and then I think like do the innovative things, even though they're not going to show up literally, that's not a test as a, a question on your test like that's just not going to be um but model what you you like jimmy costa says you model what you get you get what you model so doing a lot of that i think is really important so kayla we've got one question for you and then uh i just want to share something before i ask you the question i think this is a really okay. important thing is that there's a i see a couple of people uh tweeting about every teacher should get on twitter and how important this is and and i, I i'm going to say something that will be a little bit uh, contradictory to this. Uh, I don't okay. believe that if you are, you're not an effective teacher if you're not on Twitter. I don't believe that at all. You could, there's different spaces. I believe you should connect with other educators, but maybe Twitter's not the place for you. But one thing that I really want to stress is, uh, Kayla started in 2012, and so that's her timeline. And I, I between 2009 and 2010, I am, drinking the Twitter Kool-Aid and thinking it's the greatest thing ever. And if you don't, if you don't use Twitter, you're relevant. And so where Kayla, she was obviously based on my thinking, was irrelevant. irrelevant for three years prior. And so some of the people that are saying every teacher needs to be on Twitter made us started last year. When I started in 2009, my brother was telling me two to three years prior that I should be on this. And so what I really want to stress is, Everyone is at different phases in their career, in their life. And just remember that when you're, when people tell each other, and I'm not saying this to any person specifically, it's more, this is my own correction to myself, is that every person is at a different phase. And you might think, you know, if you're not on Twitter, you're irrelevant, then where were you prior? And I think that we have to understand that there are things you do today um, every Katie, this is true for Katie. This is true for Kayla. This is true for myself that at one time and Kayla proved it that you thought were stupid and, and now it becomes a norm. It becomes a part of your practice. And so I think that 
understanding that about yourself makes you much more empathetic to people who are at different phases in their career. Not worse, they're just at different levels in their career. So I really encourage you to, to if you're empathetic to somebody and have an understanding of why they may not, you know, see this and you can show them value, that is a lot more helpful than, you know, obviously you're not a good teacher if you're not on Twitter. It's not a, it's not a good approach. And I, I'm not saying Kayla said that at all. I'm just, I, I'm stressing something that I've corrected in myself uh, for sure. Now, one of the questions I got from, I, I always, I'm terrified of saying names, Lynn Geralamo. So uh, she asked Kayla, so you, te you teach and like yesterday was Halloween and I'll be honest to you, I don't miss teaching at all on Halloween. That's not, I'm not like, oh, I wish I was in schools yesterday. Not at all. So how, how do you find, how do you find or make or whatever you want to say time to do things that, go above and beyond your teaching that you know still are related to education but you speak you write how do you what do you, how do you do that <laughs> oh my gosh okay so that's a that's another loaded question so i think it's all about um priorities i know that you get on me when i don't blog because i have 24 hours just like everybody else has 24 that's hours not, that's not like me okay not at all <laughs> Um, so it's true though, like everybody gets the same 24 hours. So it's about just what, what you put those, what that time it goes into is obviously what you're prioritizing. So there are certain things that I will not skip every single day, um, just for my own, like Jimmy Costas calls it being life fit, not really finding balance, but being more life fit. And so, um, I think that that's really important. Like I will not skip devotion every day. I will not skip exercise every day. Um, certain things that I do that are like routines for my sanity, um, and I write when I feel like writing. Um, I don't ever try to like force my writing because I feel like it's not quality then. So, um, and that's not something that always comes really easy to me. It has to be like the perfect stroke of luck to make it work. So um, I think like as far as in my classroom, I always look at the standards of what I need to teach. And then I see like, is there a way that I could do this that would be um, creative or different or maybe the, the learning will stick longer or things like that. So like I do a lot of whole brain teaching in my classroom that incorporates a lot of different actions and repeating things. Um, yesterday, actually, we did have Halloween in our classroom. So and it was like actually pretty calm yesterday. My kids were a little tired when they came in this morning, but they they were good. But yesterday, our Halloween party was actually spooky STEM challenges. So I had three different STEM challenges and we did all the learning about it before. And then yesterday was the challenge during our party. So I think it's just a matter of like, like I said, like where you put your time is what matters in your life. And so finding what works for you um, might not be what works for me or what works for me might not work for you, but right now it's working. So I just keep doing what I'm doing. Uh, I appreciate that. I think that, I think that where we make priority, right? I, I think that everyone's at different phases of life and, you know, but if it is priority for you, it'll get done. And, and, uh, it's not about finding time. It's about making time. I think that's, there's a distinction there. Um, so I, I just want to uh, kind of summarize. First of all, again, I want to thank everyone who took part of iMOOC. Um, one of the, the, the last chapters, I, I talk about my own uh, parents' experience, you know, how they look for opportunities and different things. And it's kind of how I was raised is that, you know, not everything works out great. And there's a lot of people who made time uh, to make this happen. And, um, I just want to acknowledge that Katie actually um, publishing with my company, Impress, uh, which is a co-company with uh, Dave Burgess. She will have a book coming out 
Um, and we're, so this will be coming out, I think, around uh, December. So it'll be a good Christmas present. Um, but we're thinking about um, having another iMOOC, but with Katie's book as uh, if you've already participated and read The Innovator's Mindset, and then if you're new, you would use The Innovator's Mindset. So I would love uh, your thoughts on that, uh, what you think about that opportunity. But Katie, can you just kind of tell everyone uh, kind of about your book and what's coming up? Yeah, super exciting. It feels um, very surreal and very excited for the opportunity. Um, been writing it for a while, last six months, and just excited for it to come together. So we're looking at um, learner-centered innovation, which is really the you know the work a lot of what we're talking about and thinking about creating experiences in school that empower our kids, but also empower the adults. Um, you know, a lot of my work is around professional learning and creating the environment and the ecosystem so that our teachers, our administrators, and the adults can thrive so that they can create the best opportunities for kids. Um, and as a parent, one of my big hopes is that it's a conversation starter. Um, I certainly don't have all the answers, lots of ideas, and lots of questions, and really looking at starting the conversation between our families, between our administrators and teachers to think about, as Kayla mentioned earlier, what is it that we value in schools and, um, and how do we create opportunities and experiences for everyone to make sure that we're, we're getting um, to the outcomes that, that really matter. So, so we're, that's we're it. <laughs> pretty excited about it. Katie, uh, Katie's blog is absolutely amazing. And so that a lot of that writing and some other stuff that is not in her blog will be in there is uh, pretty exciting. Uh, so I'm honored to be a part of the project. And to be honest with both of you, I'm honored to know both of you. I so appreciate um, not only the amazing stuff that you do, but your your humility in the way you do it. Not, not one of us thinks we have all the answers and all of us are willing to learn from each other. Um, and, and if you think you have all the answers, make sure you open up your classroom because I want to see perfection in teaching if, if you do that. But nobody nobody has the answers. And if you think you do, uh, you're probably already you know, falling behind. So um, I, I just want to take time to thank everybody. Kayla, do you have any last words uh, for, for everybody at the end of this episode? Um, best practice starts now. So go do it like tomorrow. Don't wait till Thanksgiving break or like Christmas break or next year. Just go do it like uh, tomorrow. Awesome. And Katie, final words. Oh, um, <laughs> gosh, um, you stumped me. So I just thank you, Kayla. I really appreciate this. And, and I think, as you said, George, don't all have, you know, but um, if we look to our kids and we look to the learners, um, we can find them. So awesome. journey to figure it out. Thank you. And so uh, thank you again. I move chat tomorrow night uh, with Katie Anik and Tara at, I think it's 9 p.m. Eastern, correct? Yes. 9 p.m. Eastern. So it'll be the last one. Uh, so thank you so much for taking the time to listen. We look forward to continuously learning from you after this process, which has happened with many of the people that join iMOOC. So thank you so much for your time. We look forward to doing this again. Thanks. Nice. Thank you. Mirror, mirror on the wall. Tell me, mirror, what is wrong? Can it be my daylight clothes or is it just my daylight song? What I do ain't make believe. People say I sit and try, but when it comes to being daylight, it's just me, myself, and I.